taking time with me today. Jonathan Lopez, we had an interview several years ago. So um, I will tell you that Steph Casella has now been interviewed by us three times. So we go to five, you win a jacket. So if we keep doing this, maybe eventually we'll get you a jacket with a, you know, a, a nice logo on the side. So, but thanks for doing this. Um, two reasons I wanted to talk to you. One is obvious all the work that you've been doing uh, in the corruption, anti-corruption space or defending in the white collar, white collar world a little bit about personal liability, but also you formed a new law firm. And I think it's always interesting when folks come from a larger organization to either consult on their own or with partners uh, and similarly with law firms. You're now um, a partner, Jacobson Lopez. You guys just started a couple of months ago. You and your partner, former DOJ lawyers, give us a little bit of sense of your background at DOJ, and then we'll go into the some of the topics that we want to cover today. Well, uh, first of all, thanks, John. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it last time. Happy to be here again and uh, definitely going to aim for that five time award. Uh, But it's always a pleasure to speak to you and and thank you for having me. Yes. So recently formed a new law firm with my partner, Billy Jacobson. We met at DOJ over 15 years ago in the criminal fraud section when we were both there uh, doing anti-corruption matters. Uh, Billy was one of the first He was the number two guy at DOJ for FCPA at the time. And FCPA at the time was not what it is today. I mean, he's really one of the forefathers of modern enforcement for DOJ. And we became very good friends. I stayed at DOJ after he left. Um, So, you know, fraud, I was on the Enron task force, had the pleasure of being on that right place, right time. A lot of anti-corruption cases and fraud. Then moved over to MLARS and headed up the bank integrity unit as it was just being formed as one of its inaugural deputy chiefs. And overall spent about 11 years in DOJ, starting my career as an AUSA in Miami. In 14, I met up with Billy at a big law, and we then went to another big law firm. And uh, the two of us, after spending close to 10 years at big law, said, you know, we don't need to do it this way. We have a lot of clients that uh, need our help from internal investigations to compliance assistance, both on the anti-corruption an anti-money laundering front, uh, as well as lots of individuals that we help executives that uh, need advice as, you know, the government comes knocking or otherwise. And we figured we can do this ourselves at lower rates where you don't have to gear up the big law firm machinery and um, still pick our kids up at soccer. Uh, So we figured clients get value. They get the attention of big law and former DOJ, and we get to have fun doing it. That's great. Corruption obviously has always been an issue, and as you mentioned, though, is there's a much higher focus now. The Biden administration has an anti-corruption strategy. Yep. Uh, the State Department's involved in that, as you well know. It's both a global and domestic issue. As we are recording this, uh, Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey has just been indicted for uh, corruption-related charges, and we haven't had a chance to really dive deep into the indictment, but obviously a domestic politically exposed person. Maybe we'll we'll talk a little bit about that toward the end, but let's talk in general about the environment in terms of anti-corruption with the major focuses, again, both globally and domestically, what is uh, both the biggest challenges you face representing clients and maybe give us some, some insight into um, what the government has, has been focusing on, whether at the state or federal level. Yeah, absolutely, John. So you hit the nail on the head that the government, this administration in particular, starting in 2021, has really 
focused its efforts on taking the different pieces of the agencies at the federal level that touch on corruption and bringing them together in a coordinated fashion. People have been working hard on corruption at state, at DOJ, at other places uh, for a long time. But that strategy that came out uh, was preceded by a presidential memorandum in 2021 establishing corruption as a national security interest. Uh, and that's a big deal. Came out June 3, uh, 2021. Um, and it says, you know, uh, the fight against corruption is a core U.S. national security interest and commanded all the agencies to start working together to modernize and pull resources and 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 hold uh, both individuals and companies accountable. Uh, and that followed uh, by the White House strategy and also followed by FinCEN issuing an alert on kleptocracy and foreign public corruption in, I think, April of 2022. So it, it really demonstrates the White House's and this administration's commitment to, to pulling all the pieces together and making DOJ act in a coordinated fashion. I, I think what I'm seeing as the biggest trend in corruption, and I'm happy to talk generally, and then we can talk about financial institutions in particular, because they're slightly differently situated. But the biggest trend in corruptions, and it's not a new trend, it's it's been there for a bit, is not so much bad apples in an organization itself. There are bad apples in organizations. Uh, the actions of a quote-unquote bad apple make the organization responsible for those actions, and they can be on the hook for it. And we've definitely seen bad apples in like the FIFA cases um, and Goldman Sachs. So I'm not trying to say that's that, that, that's not there. But day-to-day -day corruption issues really center around who are you partnering with? Who uh, are you doing a JV with? Who are your vendors in foreign countries? And, and by the way, when I talk about corruption, I'm talking about foreign bribery uh, primarily. Um, who are your vendors? Who are the people working with you? Who are your agents? How much do you know about them? Because those actions can also hold, uh, make the company liable for those actions as well. And so that's where more, uh, where, where the trend is and to make sure that when you're acquiring a company, merging with a company, uh, that you understand what you're getting because DOJ and the SEC expect diligence on those mergers and acquisitions to understand what you're getting. And they expect that you as a company know who you're partnering with in the course of your business dealings. I'm going to ask you specifically about what financial institutions can do to detect and report corruption, but let me ask a broader question. Um, when corruption does occur at an organization, and let's say it's not necessarily bad apples, but it's sort of systemic, is it clear that it's just a suit, a a large failure of the of the culture of compliance or the culture of propriety that uh, is evident to the to the prosecutors as they're they're going through investigating their case. So in other words, uh, there might be in some cases a few individuals that are you know stealing money or inside abuse or whatever it is. But in other organizations, it's sort of from the tone, as they say, the tone at the top and the middle and the bottom is do whatever it takes to fulfill the bottom line. I mean, I know that's you know, a high yeah. level question, but what's your thought on that, given all the work you've done both in the government and now on the outside? Sure, absolutely. So um, a couple of things on that. Uh, just at the top line, there's a great example to your culture question. 
And that's the Morgan Stanley example of a few years back where Morgan Stanley had one of their managing directors who was engaged in bribery in Asia. And what Morgan Stanley did when they were dealing with the DOJ is basically were able to show DOJ, hey, this isn't a tone at the top problem. Okay, this is a bad apple problem. And the reason I can tell you, DOJ, it's not a tone at the top problem is we've trained our people 54 times over the past X number of years. And by the way, this guy got trained seven times and he got X number of, you know, policy reminders and everything possible to show that our intent is to have not just a paper policy, but a policy in practice. And this was a true bad apple. DOJ, when they um, bring a case against any corporate entity, they follow a set of guidelines set forth in what's known as the Justice Manual. And it's at justice.gov, public for everyone to look at. And, and there's a series of factors that are commonly known as, quote unquote, the Philip factors after former Deputy Attorney General Mark Phillip. But they've been tweaked a little bit here and there. And there's 11 factors that DOJ is supposed to content, uh, consider. One of them is the pervasiveness of the wrongdoing, for lack of a better term, in the organization to try to get to the exact question you're asking. Is this an isolated incident or is this something that is systemic? And the difference between a declination, which is what Morgan Stanley got, meaning DOJ says we declined to prosecute you, Morgan Stanley, or either a deferred prosecution agreement or something more serious is exactly, in part, this question of how systemic. There's a, a number of other factors that come into play. One of them, John, being, you know, the history of misconduct of that particular company. And Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco has, in the past year or two, issued a memo saying, hey, we're not going to limit it to this particular issue here. Like, if you as a company keep showing up at DOJ for one issue or another, we're going to take that into consideration when you come next time as to like, hey, you guys, it's like your kids. It's like, what is it this time? Uh, and it might be the punishment takes into account some of the previous things that you as a company may have already been punished for. You just may get hit more severely this time around. Well, that makes that makes perfect sense. And I think that's sort of a, a theme with regulators in general, right? That and also if you're under, say, a consent order and you're not fulfilling the time limits or the, the deadlines, that sort of thing. Um, so as you know, because you're enmeshed in the AML community as well, the uh, law, the AML law from a couple of years ago uh, directed the Treasury and other aspects of the government to create a list of priorities, which they did back in June of 2021. We actually had an interview recently with a FinCEN representative who indicated that there, in December, there'll actually be a notice of proposed rulemaking, finally, on the priority. So look look for that, and obviously uh, your clients will be interested in your take on it. But my, well, my question related to that is, corruption is clearly one of the eight priorities. So we don't know yet what the requirements will be from a compliance standpoint, but if I call you and say, hey... I'm the AML BSA officer of X Bank, and I'm trying to figure out what I need to do in terms of mapping my process to whether I have strong anti-corruption detection, training, that sort of thing. Uh, given that we don't know exactly what you're going to have to do, and it's got to be a risk-based approach, all that kind of stuff, what, what, what do you tell them? What, and what have you seen from your clients 
that have done some good things in the anti-corruption space. Obviously, also, if you want to mention representing some that have not been as strong, that's fine, too. But I'm I'm interested in the positive side and what you've seen and also what you recommend. Yeah. So great, great question. So the first thing I recommend to that PSA officer is to work closely with the legal team as well, because financial institutions, I referenced this a second ago, are a little bit differently situated than, say, Chevron. OK, Chevron. has to worry about operating overseas and their oil leases and are they bribing anyone to get oil leases and as an example they don't have to worry about their customers in the same way they don't have an obligation to have an aml program that's you know imposed upon them Uh, they may want to have one but they don't have that financial institutions your bsi officer for example has an obligation to have an aml program and now has an obligation to be considering corruption and filing sars on corruption per the fincen advisory if they if they spot it but that doesn't also mean or said more positively in the positive f- fashion the fi- that financial institution if it's operating internationally still has to worry about how it operates internationally from who it, who's getting its licenses, who's getting its real estate. So it has to worry about it from both perspective, both as an institution itself, and that would be kind of the legal side, and from who its customers are, and that would be the BSA officer side. And you'd want to kind of both sides to be talking as they think about how to deal with corruption. To your question about the BSA officer specifically, I would really pay attention to that FinCEN guidance. That's my advice. Uh, it's uh, it's not rocket science advice. Everyone should pay attention to fits and guidance. So I get that. There was interestingly an example in there. It gives some typologies of different bribery that has happened in laundering funds. One of them is a case I uh, represented on the defense side, right when I left government. Uh, it's referenced uh, specifically in there. Vadim Mikrin, a Russian. Uh, national here in the U.S. that uh, was alleged to have, and he pled guilty to money laundering in connection with nuclear fuel, spent nuclear fuel coming from Russia to the U.S. to use in civil reactors here as part of a overall Department of State megaton to megawatt program. And so he got um, accused of essentially giving preferential contracts to transport that fuel uh, and you know, getting bribed for that. And so I, it was one of my first cases coming out of the government representing Mr. McRen. And uh, so it was interesting to see it in the FinCEN guidance. Uh, but but watching the red flags they point out, those are good red flags. Some are obvious and some apply across the board, but some are specific, like thinking through public officials who have financial transactions with countries they have no ties with, really being attuned to that. You know, why is, uh, and and they specifically point out people working at embassies here. Mm -hmm. You know, why are people with embassies, you know, working for the Australian embassy sending money to Ghana, if that's happening, right? Or the other way around is probably more likely. Um, But understanding and watching, paying particular attention to embassy accounts, paying particular attention to the matching up of peps and their transactions. I think that's that's the best way because, you know, FinCEN's going to look at this. I don't care how many times people say this is guidance or an advisory and you don't have to do it. We all know. We all know. We all know you do. So you should. Uh, I want to take advantage of the time we have to get you maybe some quick, quick comments on, on a couple of topics. Well, sure. uh, before you mentioned organizations, 
versus individuals. I was just listening to a podcast where the uh, host was saying that in his view, the most corrupt organization in the world is FIFA. So all I wanted to say about that, and obviously we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I, you know, we have the World Cup coming to the U.S. in 2026, and obviously decisions being made of where things are going to occur, like what stadiums and all that. And, and I've already heard that uh, people like Jerry Jones of the Cowboys and Mara of the, my Giants, you know, they're talking to the FIFA people because, A, they obviously would love to have events or the matches there, uh, you know, at their place, because you're not going to just make a little bit of money. You're going to make a lot of money. What is the government, just high level, like if you're still at the Justice Department, uh, given it's going to be in our backyard, it's going to be in Mexico, Canada, and here, uh, are they, do they look at something like that, or do they wait for like a whistleblower? FIFA has already been nailed by IRS and others. So again, I'm not asking for any, you know, proprietary information, but I'm just really curious what, prosecutors are thinking because if it's, there's not a, a more clear opportunity for bribery and corruption than that right yeah so prosecutors are generally reactive so they're going to you know maybe they put a sting together an undercover operation in advance to try to take advantage and catch people um they do that they've done it in anti-corruption context they do it in child exploitation context obviously in drug context so Okay. possible they put some kind of sting together to try and catch someone. But other than that, they're generally reactive. What what does end up happening at the state and local level is whatever city ultimately it ends up in and how it all works, that local city should work with council and they may have to beef up their council to spot corruption uh, and you know talk through vendor diligence and talk through participant diligence um, so you don't have a Salt Lake City situation that we had in the Olympics way back when. So, yeah, there's a lot of work that the venue and the city and the state and local officials need to be thinking about to kind of beef up what they're doing so they don't become a headline later. Yeah, quick aside. I mean, this is where we really need investigative journalists to do their job, right? So we'll we'll see about that. I also want to uh, take advantage of the fact that you've represented a number of compliance officers and BSA officers over the years um, in terms of uh, issues either related directly to personal liability or they're simply being questioned by your former colleagues. So uh, two questions, I guess. One would be, um, how common is that now? And then typically, um, if they're just simply being the subject of conversation, how do you advise your clients high level? I mean, what, what do you talk about in terms of other than the obvious about answering the questions truthfully, all that sort of stuff? I'm just curious, is the, is the environment changing? I see some evidence of that, but you would know much better than any of us. Yeah, so so one, how common? It's becoming more and more and more common. And you can imagine why, right? You know, first of all, uh, MLARS, uh, the Money Laundering Asset Recovery Section, who does a lot of these AML investigations, um, is oftentimes in conjunction with other U.S. attorney's offices, you know, are really ramping up their efforts and have ramped up their efforts. I mean, they're there. And so when you want to talk to a financial institution about what happened with a potential compliance miss or just understand if there was one, who do you want to talk to? You want to talk to the BSA officer. That's who's going to tell you what the plan was. So more and more common. So what do I recommend other than the obvious? Uh, look, the first thing I would recommend if if a current or former employer says to you, hey, DOJ wants to have a few words with you, 
this is a little self-serving, but I don't mean it that right, way because right. you don't have to call me. But 9.99 times out of 10, if you say to that company, hey, I think I'd like my own counsel for this, the bank's going to pay for it. And so you should get your own counsel. The bank is there to, like the counsel for the bank's there to represent the bank. Maybe help you too, but really to represent the bank. So you want someone in your corner and that's available. Second thing I would say, the most important piece of the puzzle is to have hopefully your counsel call DOJ and say, hey, why do you want to talk to Mr. X or Miss X? And what I'm not seeing as much as I would hope to have seen is DOJ lowering the temperature quickly. They do do it. I have seen it, but I've also seen them not do it in cases where they really could, where they say, listen, I have no reason to think that your client intentionally disregarded the AML policies. Maybe I disagree with one or two of the decisions. Maybe I think it should have been faster, but we're not talking about exposure for your client based on the facts as I see it. Let's all lower the temperature and come in and talk to us. So that's the biggest piece of advice, which is, you know, under, it's really advice to my former colleagues. Lower the temperature and you'll get the information. People are nervous when they have to go talk to DOJ. That is not, it's something I appreciated in the abstract when I was a prosecutor, but it's hard. I mean, when your day-to-day -day job is to call people in to talk to you, right. you forget the actual impact it has on that person who's never had a brush with DOJ, how scary that is, and how many sleepless nights, even if they have nothing to worry about. And, and when I, as a lawyer, have to say that DOJ is not willing to tell me they're really not interested in you. Now, facts change, and that always gets caveated. It, it increases the stress, and there's no need for it. And sometimes you end up in a position as a lawyer where you tell DOJ, we're not talking to you. And if you subpoena us, we're going to exercise our fit, not because we did anything wrong, but because you should be lowering the temperature. You're not, and I don't know why. Um, let me ask you, you know, I come to you, I say, hey, <clears throat> Jonathan, I have a chance to be the BSA AML officer for X Bank. And um, I'm interested. Um, I think the bank seems supportive of the area. What advice would you give me before I walk through those doors? It's a, it's a, yeah. The, so look, the advice I would give is to first understand from the bank exactly what the warts are. I've had a number of both clients and friends in the industry that didn't really realize, quote, how bad it was until they got there. Uh, and I think really probing, and it's hard to do when you're trying to get a job, right? It's hard to, you don't want to, you don't want to not get the job, uh, but you also want to, you know, ask the tough question. So, you know, understanding exactly what the, you know, is there a budget for fixing things? You know, what are the issues you're seeing and having that kind of conversation? Because when you get in and you want to fix it, you want to know that you can fix it because otherwise DOJ may come to you and say, why is it taking so long? Why is this so hard? Why can't you fix it? The, the second thing that I would really bake in there is, a, and if you can, and a lot of it just depends on your leverage, is the making sure that if there is an issue, the country, uh, the company will allow you to get your own counsel at their expense. And then thirdly, uh, so the, you know, that second one is a little nuts and boltsy, but the third one is uh, from a high level operating ex is make sure your reporting lines and this is, you know, been well talked about, but make sure you have a direct reporting line to the audit committee or someone with that kind of power that you can have those conversations and you're enough, you're high enough on that org chart to actually effectuate the change you may need to effectuate. 
let me, uh, I'll get you out of here, get you out of here on this one. You've been out of government for what, 10, 10 years, 11 years, roughly something uh, like that? Close to 10, just closing in on 10. So, yeah. And what I always like to uh, ask folks that have done that, that have transitioned from, I won't say one side to the other, but, you know, in terms of going to the private sector versus the government where you're, you're, you know, you're worried about prosecutions, investigations, all that sort of thing. What have you learned in the past decade from representing clients in a space that's obviously pretty dramatic if there's, uh, you know, if there's if there's problems and very challenging? What have you learned in, in your years since you left the government, um, you know, now that you're again, defending, you're in the white collar crime space. I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, and then maybe so, by learning that, do you do you chat with your former colleagues about things? But more importantly, what, what have you learned? Sure. So, so you know, I said in the beginning, so 11 years in, a couple different sections, uh, close to 10 years out. So almost 50-50, not quite, almost 50-50 in both. Uh, what have I learned? I think the biggest thing I've learned being on this side of the fence is that misunderstandings happen more often than you think. Uh, so in DOJ, as much as everyone's innocent and proven guilty, and they are, they're not glass half full people. They don't walk in to an investigation, in particular FBI and other enforcement agencies, thinking, how is it possible for this not to be a crime? That's not their, their focus, right? Their focus is, you know, we think something happened and we're going to prove me wrong, uh, sort of speak. So one, you know, misunderstandings actually do happen. People are in over their head sometimes um, and don't realize all of the different boundaries. And, you know, it's like that Seinfeld from a long time ago where George, I think, did something untoward with a, someone else in the office and, and uh, in the office. And he said, uh, if I had known that was frowned upon, you know, sometimes that that happens more often than not. And I do believe that if prosecutors had a chance to be defense attorneys, much like the you know JAG court does, where people switch back and forth, that would be a good thing. I mean, I started as a prosecutor as a young age, and you're given tremendous power. And you, I think I'm a good person, and I try to always do the best that you can. But there's something about life experience that it's hard to you know force into people. Is it fair to say you've learned a lot more about banking? Than perhaps you knew as a press. That's something I hear from from other colleagues of yours that have done the same thing. That they've learned a lot more about, you know, operations and other things. That as a prosecutor, they might have known high level, but they really didn't know the detail. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think that's a hundred percent true. Now, before I became a prosecutor, I spent three years as a corporate attorney at uh, Sidley in Los Angeles, and so I had put together various transactions and. Sure. IPOs and things like that as a junior attorney. So I had some sense that the business world was more complicated as a prosecutor. I think that made me a better prosecutor. But no question coming over to this side, you know, the idea the government has an idea, and I'm sure I did it too, that you can flip a switch and fix a process. You cannot flip a switch <laughs> and fix a process. It takes years. And, you know, the government has it too. And I've pointed out to them when talking to former colleagues at a bar, government has this PIV card thing, right? That's supposed to allow you access. It's your ID card. It's supposed to allow you access to go into a computer and pop it into any computer. And it's supposed to give you the right appropriate accesses or go to a government building that's not in your hometown and put it in there and open the doors. They have been working on that since I like started the government in 08. It still does not work the way it's supposed to work. And so it's like, why are you riding us? You guys, you guys can't do it either, right? And so that's- it's, I got you know, it. 
yep. human nature gets checked at the door sometimes when you're in prosecutor mode where you don't realize not all prosecutors. I don't want to paint them in a bad light, sure. uh, but it's just it's you, you kind of the, the life experience of actually seeing how something works and how hard it is is very helpful. I think I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Jonathan Lopez, the law firm is Jacobson Lopez, and it will advise individuals and companies on white collar defense, internal investigations and compliance. Uh, again, you, you've been kind enough to talk to me a couple of times, and obviously we we work together on uh, something that we're both passionate about, and that's the AML Partnership Forum that will be next Next March uh, here in D.C., then that's law enforcement and the financial sector working closely together to better to get better together, if that makes any sense. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for sharing your insight today. Really appreciate it. And we will talk again soon. Thank you, John. Appreciate the time. 